Black and Grow podcast. I'm your host, Tino Kuda, Tondarai, Unzaobaya. No, I ain't gonna repeat that. Here is a show that is creating the dialogue and the space for black men to be their most authentic selves. Now, my guest today is John Wayne III. John Wayne is a film producer and a filmmaker. Um, it's really, really cool um, to be able to have someone that creates films and contents like that on the podcast. Um, kind of like a dream, I don't know, but like at least an aspiration for this podcast to have a filmmaker on um, talking about his experiences of filmmaking, what he loves about it, um, why he wanted to do it, um, how he mentors young filmmakers. Um, I'm just spilling some of the guts right now, what we're talking, <laughs> talk about. But uh, those are some of the things we talk about alongside like managing expectations, being able to acknowledge that you need help or not wanting to be the smartest person in a room. Um, we talk about a lot of good stuff in this um, and it's quite a good in-depth conversation as I feel like most of the conversations we have here in the Black and World podcast are. Uh, but anyway, enough with me babbling on about what you're going to listen to because you're about to listen to it. So instead, uh, how about you just take a pause, breathe, ask yourself, how are you doing? How are things going with you? How are you sort of feeling in this moment? Um, I'm going to leave you with that for a second. All right. Awesome stuff. <laughs> so I hope things are going well for you. Um, I hope you're feeling good. Hope you're feeling zen. If not, I'm sending, sending some positive vibration to the microphone. My brain's not working with me these days, lads. <laughs> but either way, um, I hope you guys are doing good. I know you're going to love this conversation. So here is my conversation with John Wayne. Hi, John. Welcome to the Black and Rural podcast. It's really good to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. I do appreciate you reaching out. It's all right. It's all right. How's your day been? How have you been? Well, pretty good. Over here, the day is pretty much starting. Uh, I had one call earlier this morning, but uh, this is probably the, the, uh, the first thing I'm actually having a real conversation with somebody. Uh, nice, nice. Well, uh, thank you for coming on again. Um, and uh, for people that maybe don't know you, um, you're a filmmaker. Um, so I wanted to kind of start off with the questioning of like, what is it like being a filmmaker, like making films and kind of being in that sort of industry? Mm, what is it like being a filmmaker? Um, well, I, I don't think it's for the faint of heart. Really, filmmaking is for people who have all this creative energy and all these creative ideas in their mind and they're trying to find a way to get out. So it's a form of expression, just like musicians, you know, play instruments um, and uh, people sing songs. Filmmaking is a form of expression. So it's how I get all those creative ideas out of my head and on its sort of tangible, you know, visual plane for people to can see what's, you know, what's in my mind. Mm, yeah. And so like, I imagine like you kind of have to um, kind of sometimes be in a space to kind of like be able to sort of create. Have you always been sort of, have you always been creative? Like, is that something that's always been inside of you or? Yeah. Yeah. That creativity. I mean, I've always had a really bit as a child, I had a really vivid imagination. Uh, I remember some of the, the first things I didn't realize this, you know, uh, two years later is um, I remember when we was young kids and I did, I, me and my brother wrote a play that we did for someone's wedding. So it was like our gift to them. Aww. How they met each other and stuff like that. And at the time I didn't really see it. I didn't see a, a future with that because my, at, my, at the moment my, my plan was to do something different. Um, but now when I look back now, just the whole putting it together and the scenes and the, the writing, I, it was just something that was inside of me that I just did not realize that was there. Yeah. Have you been able to look back on that? Um the play that you and your brother created have you seen it 
Now, somebody's recorded it. This is back in, uh, you know, somebody, this is back when people really, if you had a video recorder, you really had like a little money. And I do remember the woman who, uh, we, who Wendy was, I do remember um, they recorded it. Now, where exactly is it at? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that'd be something. Like, if, if you ever were able to see it again, that'd be, that'd be an experience to kind of go back. Yeah, it would be. I mean, that's like really, really, I mean, it was like the first science of my creativity. You know, I remember the now as an adult, you kind of reflect back on things. There was a um, a school pl- uh, assembly program. Mm-hmm. Well, back doing when I was young, I think they might still do it now. They picked the song, a theme song. So they picked a popular song. Yeah. Um, a year. And that's what the kids would, would sing to perform and do whatever. And so uh this particular assembly program i'm not sure what it was about but the song was the stylistics people make the world go round mm. and so the idea was that everybody would say what they wanted to be when they grew up and i don't know what it was and i guess it's just the universe had had a plan for me i said i wanted to be a film producer now this is in third grade yeah so my mother went about this like indiana jones had and i had the slate <laughs> and when I get old, I want to be a film producer. Once that selling program, I never thought about it again until like years later when I was uh, producing some music videos in Chicago and I was sitting in the van doing the paperwork. And I remember that I'm actually doing what I said I wanted to do when I was in third grade. It was like mind blowing. And wow. at that moment, I realized that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. What was that sort of revelation like, like being able to remember that and be like, Raw, I'm actually doing that now. It was a weird moment of clarity. I mean, I've had like one or two times in my life where everything was just so clear. If sitting in that van, it was just kind of like I, I saw my life very clear, saw the direction clearly. Yeah. If I wrote that path down, it'd been really great for me. But at that moment, I realized that it, it like went away. <laughs> I knew what I still need to do, but I just didn't. It's like I didn't write the notes down, like, okay, do this, do that. I didn't write those yeah. notes down. It was clear of what I needed to do. Mad. That's crazy. That's honestly crazy. And, and like, I think moments like that, you can't, like, like, you can't, you can't predict or like, they just, when they come, like, you know, it's that moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, how have you, so like, how, well, how old were you when you kind of started going into, sort of like the film industry. Um, like, yeah, how old are you? Like kind of what was your journey kind of going on from that point? So when I was, my idea when I was, uh, when I went to college was that I was going to be, uh, I want to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So I was a biology major, but a minor in political science. So my idea was that I want to be a gerontologist. I want to be an old folks doctor. And my idea was that I knew that uh, by the time I got out of medical school, all the baby boomers would start to retire. So I was going to take the medical career. I was put my name on these, all these, I was doing some real estate, put my name on all these places where they lived at. And then I would flip that into a political career because certain voting blocks are very committed. And so they, I figured they, if I lived, they lived in a place where my name was on, they would vote for me. Now yeah. I didn't have any political agenda. I figured I could hire somebody for that. But that was my <laughs> idea, become a doctor get really great into the community where they depended on me and I trusted me and then flipped that into a political career. Mm. So the summer that I had to start looking for, like figure out what medical school I was going to go to, this uh, production manager called me. I honestly do not remember this conversation, but she said I left a message on the voicemail, on an answer machine. Yeah. And I left a message and said, uh, inquiring about an indie movie that they were shooting in Chicago. And I was like, no, I didn't. So I guess you did. And at the time, I was—I had just lost my job as a manager of a, at a parking garage. Yeah, I was getting unemployment, and uh, we went back and forth. And at the time, I wouldn't do anything. So I said, "Well, you know, maybe it might be, you know, interesting." So I go in. It was for a second assistant director's position on the movie. I went in with like this suit and tie on, you know, all dressed up. And about five <laughs> minutes into it, the first AD realized I couldn't help him do nothing. <laughs> so a week later she called back and said look I can't give you that job but uh, there's a production assistant's uh, job in the art department and I think they work because the guy we hire uh, he doesn't have a job license from Canada mm. now 
truth be told, my life was suspended at the time, but I said yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I figured, you, you know, figure it out later. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I worked on the movie in the art department. Uh, my official title of the movie was uh, Set Dresser. The universe as usual has a plan for you. The movie that I worked on was George Tillman's first film out of film school. George Tillman mm-hmm. did all the Men of Honor, barbershop movies. And, you know, oh, yeah, good films. I didn't know movies. anything who he was. I had no idea. All I know was working on this, this indie movie. <laughs> and uh, they were, the pay was, they were working 16 hours a day, six days a week for six weeks straight. And the pay for a production system was $50 a week. Wow. And I said, yes. <laughs> Why <laughs> not? Yeah, yes, <laughs> I would do it. And what happened was uh, I worked on him, with, with that with him, and then some other stuff, you know, as time went on. But I met another guy who uh, didn't go to film school either. He went to, like, community workshop for film. Mm. And uh, during that time when people uh, wanted to do music videos, you either went to New York or L.A. There was nobody really in Chicago or in middle America, period, doing that. Yeah. Because it was like real cameras, real development and process. It wasn't like, I'm just going to get a video camera. Nope. It, that didn't exist. Mm. And so uh, we said to ourselves, well, man, we should start doing music videos because, you know, it's really nobody here in Chicago really doing it. It's like just one other guy, but really nobody was really captain to the market of doing it. Yeah. And so we, um, we, but we need, we didn't, had never done one before. So uh, we got this one guy, which is his, his cousin was a big house producer and he knew somebody who needed a music video. We go see the guy and he's like, great, let me, let me see y'all work. And he's like, we ain't, we ain't never done it before. <laughs> <laughs> so how do I know you can do it? It's like, we can do this. And so it really was based off the fact that the cousin said, look, they can do it. Go let them do it. And we did it, and it was a really big success. I mean, it was a really good video. It was uh, M. Dark Feast and Shante Savage. It was, mm. It's a song thing. It was a really, it turned out really well, and that kind of propelled us to doing music videos, you know? Yeah, oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, so it was just kind of like one of those things that we just have to be in the right place at the right time. And people believed in us, and people gave us a chance. Yeah. You know? And it just kind of worked out well. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to back yourself, don't you? Like, and just kind of just be like, right, I'm just going to say yes. Even though my driver's license, <laughs> even though I don't have it, if you never suggest that um, opportunity, you know, who knows where you'd be now. But that's, yeah, that's really cool that you kind of um, were able to get some people to believe in you and that yeah. you ended up producing it. Um, how did you feel sort of once it became like a big, a big success and you kind of was like, oh, we can actually do this, you know? So, you know, success is normally not a, a very uh, do something and successful. That, that just usually does not really happen that way. So it was a linear things of events that happen. You know, uh, we'd start doing music videos um, in Chicago. We were, that was during a time where people were actually spending money on music videos. Mm. And they were spending money on music videos from songs that weren't even on the radio. They would spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars on music videos. These songs weren't even on radio. People wow. just wanted to say they had a video, and it was during a time when Hype Williams was kind of really going up. So he was spending a lot of money on music videos. So people were okay with spending that type of money on on music videos. And so, yeah. Uh, we started at, at first. I was just you know production manager and eventually producing uh, music videos, and I would use other directors in the city to do it. But I I, I had got a deal. This is before the internet. When I wanted to do music videos, I would start on Monday. There used to be this book called uh, 411. I think they still publish it. Well, all the record labels in the world, contact number, information, everything. Yeah. And I would start on Monday and I would say, okay, I want to make XX amount of dollars this week. And I would just start calling people. And my pitch was to people that if you know you're going to spend, you're going to do like six, seven videos this year. If you let me do three of them, I'm going to charge you the same price. Okay. Yeah. Same price. So that way your cost is controlled. I mean, there's some caveats to that, but I'm going to charge you the same price. And mm. people, it would it blew my mind. I would fax over a great people sign it. And they would wire me money. That always blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You just send me money. And, they would just, and, I, and, I, and that's how I got to do so many music videos. But then there was a period of time where um, when I, especially when I went from being a production assistant and, and wanted to produce, it was hard because you don't people either, you don't, um, not a lot of pay, 
you know, infrequent opportunities or people don't pay you a variety of different things. Just like mm. most people in the industry, you get to a point where, you know, some things have happened. And uh, so it was really rocky when I decided I wanted to go into production management into production coordinating. Um, I had to turn out a lot of work because I had to let people, you know, take serious. So it was not this smooth transition. So yeah. eventually when I got into I, I'm going to say this. One of the main reasons I got to produce it, which is weird, is that because before I was I was acting, too. Yeah. OK. Story. I went to this audition uh, for this. Uh, the show used to come on ABC called uh, ABC After School Special. Mm. And it was like uh, telling stories of young people and stuff they're doing. It's like with under the hour program. It's like after school, you go and look at these programs. So I went yeah. I went to audition for this uh, ABC After School Special. And the uh, cast director, my mom said, oh, that's really good. But she told me I wasn't black enough. Mm. Yeah. Mess wow. Me up. And uh, you, you telling a 20 something year old young man that he wasn't black enough. And so that kind of like really I, 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 it took me a couple of years to kind of figure out what that meant. Uh, but I realized is that no matter what anybody say, I'm black 24 hours a day. That's really yeah, <laughs> you can't define my black. You know, they <laughs> do that. But I have to. I'm young and I'm impressionable. And so I had to go through a, a journey of trying to figure that out. Yeah. And but I also realized that I figured that if I produce my own stuff, nobody can tell me I can't be in it. Yeah, true. I to create opportunities for myself to 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 do that, you know. So my career has, I, you know, I, I've just really been in a lot of good places. Like after I started doing a whole bunch of music videos, uh, I met this producer named Steve Silk Hurley. Steve Hurley, are you familiar with Steve? No. No, so Steve. Ironically enough, his his biggest claim to success is he was the first guy in Europe to have a crossover song from the, from the house charts to go to the pop charts. Yeah. Had before. So he's a really big house producer legend in, in, in Europe. And, um, he was had, you know, he needs some music videos and some other things. He was getting, had a deal. And mm. so I went initially to work from as a pub, uh, as a publicist. And I did not, um, when he first asked me to do it, I was like, I think I could do it. I, I wasn't sure. I said, well, let me just stay a couple of months and then see what happens. And I ended up staying three years to become director of international A&R, running his offices, agents in the UK. And wow. And so once I started doing that and I worked with him, I knew everybody at the at the record labels who commissioned music videos. Music mm. videos are not about how great a music video director you are. It's really about honesty. If I give you some money, will you come back with something I can show my boss? Networks and record labels, although they 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 uh, traffic and creativity, they're not creative entities. They're corporate, yeah. and so people are afraid of losing their PTO, their days off, their uh, pension. They don't want to do nothing that's going to mess up, you know, their job. And so, the security, they yeah, the same people over and over for stuff because they want to make sure that they at least get something they can take back to their boss. So I knew a lot of the guys who worked at the big labels who commissioned. So when I started to go back to music videos, it was just kind of a cinch. I just called people and said, hey, what you got? And, you know, we kind of worked it out. So my career has really been just, you know, uh, just really been in the right place at the right time. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it. Um, And I'm sure like you kind of need like when you're in those opportunities, when you're in those sort of good places, you've just got to take your chance and take your opportunities. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because if I had never, you know, there's a saying that says closed mouth don't get fed, Mm. you know, and if you don't speak up or let people know what you're doing, it's not even about, you know, a lot of times it's really about people already have an agenda, what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. And they're trying to figure out a solution to try to make that work. They would love to employ you and work with you. They just don't know that's what you want to do. And yeah. so you're not a conversation. They're not thinking about you. When they said it, they were like, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this work? And they're like, you're not thinking unless they see, oh, uh, Tino, he wants to do blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I did, okay, let's ask him. And you're like, wow, thanks for action. They're thinking like, well, you know, I'm glad that you want, you know, I know you want to do that. So you really have to put yourself out there and let people know what you're trying to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think sometimes some people like they just think that if even if they put themselves out there that they're not going to get it but I mean there's so much opportunity and so much chances everywhere 
Like it may just come from the most unexpected source you've ever known. Yes. Yeah. I have been a victim. I would, I would say victim of people, things where I, I've gotten work and opportunity from sources that I just was not thinking about, you know, mm-hmm. and the thing about it is that they're, they were thinking about me because I'd said something or put some seed somewhere, you know? So you really have to be uh, careful about the people that you talk to, how you interact with them, respecting other people. Cause you just don't know, you, you never yeah. know. No. And I try to like, when people send me messages just like that, when talk to me and like that, I try to like, you know, especially if I see them, I try to connect with them, at least have a brief conversation with them. And even mentoring, you know, I'm really big on that because when I started, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have anybody really to go to for mentoring. Yeah. It's not, I just did not. It was just really not a lot of stuff. I made a lot of mistakes because I just didn't know. And so when it comes to young people, especially young filmmakers of color, I really try to be there for them. You know, I try to like, if they have a question, I try to answer it. If I don't know an answer, try to get somebody who does know the answer, or at least just be a sounding board. Sometimes you just need somebody to say stuff. You need to get yeah. stuff like and so you can see, okay, that doesn't sound right. But if you <laughs> your mind and you don't really express it, what happens is that when you do act on it, it does not turn out the way you thought it was because you really didn't have nobody guidance. And, yeah. and the thing about life is this: whatever you're thinking and whatever you're going through, believe me, you're not unique. Somebody else is going or went through the same exact thing. And sometimes people don't realize, so they feel like they're on the island. So if they're going through something or they got yeah. issues, they feel like they're on the island, but you're not. I guarantee you, somebody has been in the same place as you are. It's just a matter of you speaking out and letting them know. Yeah, definitely. It's like when, you know, like when someone, like, I don't know, like you're in school and sometimes the teacher will be like, all right, who doesn't understand? And like one person puts their hands up and like, thank God he did it. Because I, yes. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, you know? It's kind of like, yes. like, there will be somebody that is on the same level as you, or at least like has just been brave enough to be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help, you know? Yes. And that's the first thing, anything, just acknowledging that you need some help. You know, I try to surround myself. I, I really don't like being in rooms where I'm the smartest person. I don't mm. like that. Because I want to be as much as I want to give, I also want to, you know, get receive some too. And so, as much as people come to me and they ask me questions, everything, I, I don't know everything. I really, don't, I really yeah. don't. You know, and so there are times when people stump me with stuff. I'm like, what? I, I have no idea. And so I have to call people and say, hey, you know, how do we resolve this? Or what, what do you, what's your insight to that? So, yeah. You got to be that person. I'm sorry, I don't understand. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, you touched on something which you said about mentoring, um, uh, what do you call it, black young uh, filmmakers. Um, and I know when we had a conversation earlier, you said that you did something, that you were you do a program for young black filmmakers. Uh, would you just like to tell me more about that? So a couple of years ago, um, I was in Atlanta doing a press junket for a film that I, I directed. And uh, this, uh, you know, people come up to you, ask questions, how to get in the industry and stuff like that. And so usually I have like a canned response, you know, this should you do, this should you do, this should you do. And so this one guy came up to me and he was like, hey, I need, you know, some insight on how to do certain things. And I said, well, you know what? You have something that I did not have, a very powerful tool. And that is um, Google. If you mm-hmm. ask the right question, Google get the right answer. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you know what, John? I don't even know what the right question to ask. And so that made me think there are a lot of young people, and particularly filmmakers of color, who have the ability to do certain things or understanding. They just don't really know how to take it to the next level. They don't understand the business part of it. Yeah. And so what I started to do a couple of years ago, one, I realized that I can't direct everything. I realized that. <laughs> I realized that I can probably put some of those guys in situations to where they could direct features and other projects. It's a whole different conversation when you can go and uh, show your stuff instead of just saying it's only this one place, but then it's, you just put the name in and it's everywhere. That's a different conversation that you have. Mm. And so it allows them an opportunity to say, Hey, I got this feature that I did and it's available anywhere. You can at least get them in an opportunity to where they can kind of have better conversations. Yeah. Uh, Everybody gets, I believe everybody gets an opportunity. Everybody gets at least once. Some people get two. But when you get to the table, you got to have something to say. Mm. And 
don't have nothing to say. Some people are very good about getting to the table. When they get to the table, they have nothing to say. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to put filmmakers in positions to where it's like, I, I have something to say. I just need an opportunity to, to say it, you know? And so the last movie I did, which is coming out December 1st, uh, it's called Ebony Hustle. Ebony Hustle is about an extra returns private investigator. So yeah, yeah. what she what she does on a daily basis is uh, does insurance fraud and workers comp fraud. So when people have those claims, they send her out to make sure that it's okay. Yeah. This particular day, uh, she uh, somebody from the neighborhood comes to her and said, "Hey, my sixteen year old daughter went to this concert three months ago to see this guy named Caleb Truth." Caleb Truth is like a, uh, he's an ex-gangster uh, rapper turned pastor. He's a cross between uh, Kanye West and R. Kelly. So he has God oh my gosh, and he likes young girls. <laughs> <laughs> and so what happens is that uh, she wants her to go get find her daughter. And she tells him, Emily says, no, I don't do missing kids, but through a series of events, events you don't get her. Yeah. So that project, I uh, brought on a young filmmaker from Chicago. His name is Jamez Hampton. Mm-hmm. Jamez had done a lot of music videos, commercials, other stuff. And he just really, the talent was there. He just needed something to kind of kickstart, compel him to go. Yeah. You know, and so uh, I'm really, it, it, he did a really good job. Um, you know, I'm really hoping that this really can kind of propel him to, to a, you know, to another level. What was it? What was it like? Sort of, men. I guess you were kind of mentoring through the process while you were also trying to direct the film as well. Like, what was that sort of process like? Well, I let him direct it. I, I didn't, oh, I didn't, okay then. All right. So you just been like a producer then. I was producing, so it's kind of like me, just kind of like you know, foster thing. You know, we the the, the thing about produce when being a director and allowing somebody else to direct. You know, <laughs> the thing about that is that they have a different vision than you do. Mm. And the idea is that as long as we kind of meet in the, in the middle of understanding, I'm okay with that because I'm also one of the writers of the two. So I have a very clear, vivid idea of how I want the characters. He had some yeah. different ideas about the, about um, the direction of the story. And I was okay with, um, and so we kind of compromised on some things, but I allow him to direct. I allow mm. him to, you know, do his thing, you know, and not to interfere. Some things I would say, you know, something, you know, but after we shoot for a couple of days, I realized he could really do it. And so I just kind of focused on directing. I did talk to him about certain things, but um, I really tried to let him, you know, you know, put his fan on the characters and stuff like that. Yeah. That's good. No one likes a micromanager, do they? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because see, he has a, he's a very, uh, I don't know if it's youth or not, but he has a very different temperament. He is very patient mm. and he is very uh, nurturing. See, me on the other hand, I'm not the type of director. It's kind of like, hey, look, we did this couple of times, let's get this right. You know, mm. so I have a different temperament of, of you know, because I'm balanced in being a producer. And a, and and the director, and so yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, no matter how great the movie is, if it doesn't get done, nobody would ever see it. So my yeah, focus is done. So he has a different uh, temperament uh, than me, which was good for the cast because he's working with a lot of uh, unknown talent. Mm. Uh, so they need a little bit more patience. I tend to work with more um, talent that is uh, seasoned actors. Yeah, so, more established, I guess. Yeah, and so they come into it with an idea, okay, this is what I need to do. We have a conversation about it, and then I'm expecting them to deliver, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's a little different dichotomy, but he did a really good job. He was very nurturing, and he was very understanding. He listened, and um, he 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 brought it home. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I definitely watch it when it comes out, um, and that's really good that you were able to kind of give him like a chance to kind of do his thing. You know what I mean? Like, cause I feel like sometimes all young people need is just for someone to say, right, I believe in you. Go and do it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is hard. I, I think about um, when I was young, the more thing that I think young people need, young families need, they really do need uh, mentors. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they need mentors is because a lot of times 
as a young person, I remember having this idea how I believe the world worked or how the industry worked and how I wanted to, you know, I'm a, every young person who thinks they're Superman. They all think that they're invincible. <laughs> you need somebody to be able to say, okay, I understand that you, you feel like you're invincible, but you're not. And let's have a more realistic idea of how to get to where you want to be. Because yeah. what happens is that a lot of times we miss a whole bunch of steps because you're trying to get to the big step. And you need to <laughs> do some other things before you get to that particular point. You know, I think about um, my career before I was, you know, I was in music. I worked in the music industry. Mm. And so there are times in my career where I've actually um, been label president, you know, managed artists and stuff like that. And so I would get people come to me who had labels and they, this one, I did, as I think about this now, so this one uh, rap group came to me. Yeah. And they said to me, um, they want me to help them, you know, help their career. And I said, okay. Mm. I said, so let's, let's, let's just kind of meet, you know, I try to manage expectations of people. Yeah. So I said, how do you, what do you see yourself in like six months? They said, well, in six months, I want to, I, I see us being on BET. BET. They said, man, you ain't got to follow nothing. I said, okay. I said, that's possible, but probably not probable. Mm. I said, so let's do some things like let's set up your publishing company. Let's you know copyright some of your stuff. Let's get yeah. your business in order so we can get to that particular point. Because it's just not, it's possible. Anything is possible, but yeah. it's not probable. Mm. And I try to mitigate ex- expectations. People are telling that they didn't, they didn't want to hear that. They wanted somebody to tell them that they was going to be in T. So they did yeah. a guy who told them that. And, you know, six months later, they were still not on B T. Mm. You know, and so eventually, like a year or so later, they came back to me and it was kind of like, okay, what are we doing? I said, no matter what, <laughs> you still need to do these steps. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of what you, you, you think, you have to do the work. And not having good management, not having good mentors keeps a lot of filmmakers, you know, not moving to the next level because people just kind of selling even these dreams of a grandeur or they don't want to really work with them and do the business part. Yeah. Cause yeah, you've got to like, and I, I feel that like in terms of even myself, sometimes I'm like, I want to be here, but like there are so many other things you've sometimes got to do to be there. And I think it just comes with maturity of that. Like, if you do those things and you keep working hard, you're going to get a lucky break or something's going to go well for you that it will then take you to that point, you know. Mm-hmm. This is true. This is true. But it takes a great deal of patience and you have to put in the work. No matter what you do, you have to put in the work. It's not, I, I had this one guy uh, come to me and he said, oh, you, you get a lot of pressure. You got people uh, writing articles. I said, let me tell you something. I just hired a publicist. There's no magical thing here. You know, I hired mm. a publicist, got a conversation and she went and did her job. That is just the way of thinking. <laughs> Everybody has to do the work. There's no like, People are like you get these opportunities because I, I back when I was calling people, cold calling them, I would call maybe a hundred, two hundred people a week. Yeah. And maybe one or two people would say yes. You know, so that's a lot of rejection. And people sometimes don't know how to deal with rejection. Mm. I look at rejection this way. If somebody says no and they're not defending, I just need to find a way for them to make them say yes. People want to say yes to stuff, especially if it's helping them. They just need to feel like you could give them what they need. They need to feel like, okay, I'm good about this because they're individuals too. And they figure their money, time, and energy that they're investing in whatever you ask them to do, you need to feel like they're going to get a return from it. So you just got to find a way people say, yes, what is, what can I do to make you uh, mitigate some of your risk in your mind to make you say yes? You know? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like rejection, as as much as it's hard to take, like, and it can be hard to take. Um, I guess you've kind of got to see how you can kind of flip it on his head and like not let it deter you. Because I know there's been times where I've faced rejection, and like I'll just mope, like I'll just sit there and be like, "Damn, I'm just moping now." Like, but I, I think I, there's there's a point where I've realized that right, sitting here moping about it ain't gonna get me anywhere, is it? Like, I've got to figure out a way and how I can turn this rejection into a positive. But, you know, look at it this way. This is the way I look at rejection. First of all, I look at this. Every time somebody says yes to me, they probably said no to somebody else. So every opportunity I get is a blessing. And also look at the rejection this way. Who are you to feel like bad stuff can happen to you? Why are you so special? You know, 
everybody, if you can't take the bad, you don't deserve the good. That's just the way life works. And the faster that people realize that, I think they'll be better off. I can't, everything can't be a success. Everything can be a 100. But whatever it is, did you learn something from it? What did you take from it to help you use the next time? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a very good way of like framing it and being able to look at it because then you're then going to, you're then going to be able to bounce back from it. And I think it's always better. It's always about how you bounce back from something rather than kind of it happening to you. This is true. A lot of times people kind of, um, they, they, they soak into whatever issue they're going through. And, and, and that goes back to the whole thing about being on the Island, whatever you're going through, you're not the first person. You're not the first person. I guarantee you, you're not the first person. So whatever issue you got, there is a solution to it. I guarantee you. It's just that you have to do some diligence to find it. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, I think one thing also, which um, I kind of wanted to kind of pick your brain about, um, I, like I wanted to kind of find out, like, why is it, I mean, what is it that you kind of love about filmmaking and about being able to tell stories? Like, what what does that mean kind of for you? So um, a, a couple of years ago, I did this uh, interview and the, the filmmaker, the, the host was asking me questions about why I want to be a filmmaker and stuff like that. Yeah. Was, well, you know, we all have these canned response, but I don't know something this particular day puts on my heart and I said, because I want to live forever. And through that, I mean, through my work, even though I lived there with my family, my kids, but through my work, a hundred years from now, somebody can be looking at my stuff because I look at old movies all the time. Mm, and I think yeah, people are not here anymore. And I'm looking at, I'm getting an insight into their mind, that thought process, a slice of life of what they were going through at the time when they wrote this, when they directed this, when they the costume director, put the makeup. I'm looking at their work. So they're living forever. They're not here, but I'm right here looking at the fruit uh, of that. And so I want to be a, a, a filmmaker to where later on somebody can, even if they don't like it, they can use it as a tool, like, okay, I would have did this differently or whatever, but they're using it in their life. And I'm, I'm living through that self-expression. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, they, cause films live on forever. Like you were saying, you used to watch all films, like one of my, like some of my favorite films, are old films like Goodfellas is one of them. And that Pulp Fiction, even though it's not even that old, I mean, when the Pulp Fiction, I can't remember when Pulp Fiction came out. Might have been around 98. I can't remember. Um, but like some of those older films, like you're looking at them and it even tells you something about the time that they were made and sort of what was going on in there. Um, like, so would you say that legacy to you is quite important? Like it's quite an important thing then? Yes. I, I, I want to be able to, when, when I leave this plane of existence, I want people to be able to feel like they have grown from something that I did, that they got some insight, you know, that they pondered, you know. Uh, I did this movie called Red All Over, and it was about gun violence. And uh, I tried to tell the story from both sides of the perspective, the person who got shot and the person mm. shooting. And so I try to tell both sides because most people, especially young people, don't get up one day and say, I'm going to shoot somebody. That's usually not the way it works. There's some events of the things that happen to make them get in that situation. How you got the gun? What were you thinking? What were you really trying to do? What was your mindset? Yeah. And then the person who gets shot, it's just like, a, you know, what propelled you to be in a spot where you were to where you were a victim of this? Mm. You know? And so what happens, you know, in the story, you know, obviously tell those those sides of the story, but it's a get it's a it's a very insight to no matter what your view is on guns or gun violence, you get to see a different perspective. You get to see the other person's side, because normally when something like that happens, the pundits get on TV and said that person is wrong for shooting. They should put them under the jail. You know, yeah. Girl, what if the little girl, you know, the person who got shot, they weren't supposed to be in the first place. Their parents told them not to do that. Don't go over there. They being yeah. rebellious. I want to see my boyfriend or whatever the case may be. What if the guy, he seriously events, he got a gun, do a variety of events, and he was trying to protect himself from somebody else. And that person got shot. So the idea is before you choose your side, 
before you pick a side, you know, really kind of understand both sides of perspective. And so I really try to do that when it comes to my storytelling or just mm. like trying to see both sides of it, you know, instead of just kind of like picking this one side and that's what it is. Yeah. I think there's a saying that apparently every story has, every story has two sides, but there's also another one, which is kind of like every story kind of has like three sorts of sides, even though uh, like one person's perspective, another person's perspective and the truth. Um, and I thought that was a really cool thing because I, even when I'm telling, even when I'm telling somebody my side of the story, I kind of start to become aware of like, I wonder if the other person would describe it like this, you know what I mean? Like, what is the actual truth of what happened? Yes. Yeah. I think about that as growing up. I have one brother who's younger, about a year and months apart. And his idea of, of uh, growing up, because we lived in the same room for 19 years. So mm. <laughs> yeah, we pretty much experienced everything. Yeah. But his, I, he remembers things and his understandings about stuff happened. It's like, that didn't happen in a way. It's like, no, it happened that way. And it just <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, yeah. Remember? I'm like, no, I don't remember that. And he said, no, I, I'm like, no, it happened this way. No, no, it didn't. I'm like, so it just blows my mind that I lived in the same room for somebody, with somebody, and they, have a total different perspective about what happened. Yeah. Just living on the other side of the room, their perspective is different because I'm thinking I, my bed is right by the room, by the door. So I'm seeing something different. I'm seeing out the window. It's by the wall. So he's looking out the door so he can see things that I don't see. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. Like everyone has their different perspective and they can be so different, even though you kind of think like it's your brother as well. Like, you would kind of think you'd be similar to a certain extent because you're in the same environment and stuff like that, but you can view something so completely different. Yes, you can. Yeah, which is, uh, yeah, I've, I think that's honestly crazy. Um, I think something which, when you're talking about sort of um, being able to have your legacy and kind of um, what you're, and kind of like when you're producing films and you're producing things, um, how do you kind of like stay authentic to kind of who you are when you're kind of putting out different sorts of media and things like that? So I think a lot of, about saying who you are is really about, especially filmmakers, how you tell stories. When I started doing music videos, I was young. And so if people didn't want to do the video exactly the way that I did it, I didn't want to do it. Mm. I was like, no, no, that's not my vision. Don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> what I realized over a period of time as, as I've matured is that one, when people are spending their money, let them do what they want to do. It's okay. You know, I can guide them in a certain direction of where to go. And I try to give good. I say for most part, people do listen to what I say. Um, so I try not to do that. Also two, I try to tell story from a perspective that's unique from me. My understanding of that. And so that keeps me from doing things that I feel like go against my whole conscious because I traditionally do stories that make sense to me. I do stories from a perspective of a black guy from South Side of Chicago growing up in a middle class family. Mm. My father's, my mother got pregnant when she was 16 years old. My father's always been there and he had a job. He was not abusive or anything. So I come from a different perspective than some of my other friends who may have had it. So I try to stay, I can tell that story. Now, yeah. I can tell the story of the crackhead drug addict because I, I see those elements in some parts of my family. I know people got this so I can tell the story, but I can't tell the story of the person who was, their parents were abusing them or somebody did this. I, I don't, I can't tell that story. Yeah. I stories that, that I understand from what I can see and what I experience. I, I really can't do that. So I have a writing partner, uh, Seth Black. She, uh, we both kind of write similar, but she has a different perspective than I do. Mm. Also for black women too. So what we usually happens is that I come up with this idea, she come up with the idea, and we usually can merge those things together, telling multiple perspectives because I feel film night, filmmaking is a cooperative process. I'm not a filmmaker where I need to be producer, director, writer, everything. Even though I've done some of those things in projects, I try to really lean on other people's understandings of how they see the world. Yeah. Because I'm not just doing movies for me. I'm doing movies because I want other people to see them. I'm doing projects because I want other people to enjoy them, not just for me. Now, when I become, get to the caliber of Steven Spielberg and I can just do <laughs> the movies that I want to do, 
it don't really make a difference. But <laughs> I'm not at that point now. So I need to do things that are entertaining to consumers in general who will be entertained by that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Steven Spielberg can just kind of do whatever he wants at this point now yeah. and just... <laughs> and people are going to go see it and it just, it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I think that's also good in terms of like having stories that are um, kind of like an amalgamation of loads of different people's perspectives. Because then at least someone sits like someone other than me sitting in a theater can relate to certain aspects of the film. And I think that just makes the whole viewing experience better, you know? Yes. I, I would agree 100%. Mm. So like when you're, so like when you're telling sort of these stories, um, do you try and, cause I know there's some filmmakers that try and put like political messages into some of the things that they do to maybe try and say something about society or to kind of, unpack unpack something about society um like do you feel like you kind of have to do that or like have a need to or do you just do it like do you do that or no not really so um it depends Hmm. obviously i mean i like politics personally that's probably my i'm not a big sports guy so politics are like sports to me (laughs) it's it's just as entertaining to be honest (laughs) so i I I absorb news in politics, not because of any kind of particular spectrum, but because I just like the banter of the back and forth debate. I, I like debate. Mm. Uh, when it comes to me inserting my political views in there, um, I guess in some ways I kind of do that to a degree. Um, I try not to do a whole bunch of it. Yeah. I, was working, I was writing uh, part of a writing team for this one television project. And the showrunner, she wasn't black. And I asked her, although the show was black, I asked Mm. her, I asked her, um, you know, her feelings about that because we're going to write this subject time we do it. She's like, well, I try not to go in those areas. I try to stay real neutral. I said, well, it's kind of hard for me because I'm black. (laughs) It's kind of hard for me to be neutral and being black. I mean, I, I get it. And television, especially mainstream television, they try to like, you know, balance it out and everything. Mm. But my experience as a black person is universal to me. And so it it eludes everything that I say and do. So my politics about it, it come out, you know. Uh, I think about, um, uh, I'm a conservative, but I'm also black. And I think about, uh, people ask me about uh, Barack Obama. I voted for Barack Obama. Mm. One, because it was my self-interest because I'm a black man. Yeah. That's the number one thing is my self-interest. Because when I saw Barack Obama, this is what I what I thought. Although I never wanted to be the president, but the possibility that I could be, yeah, enormous. And so a lot of people don't because they don't have to, you know, deal with that. They don't really think about that. But to black people, the possibility of we could do so. If you were to ask me five, six years before he became president, uh, was there going to be a black? I said, they're not going to let, because that's how black people think. They're not going to yeah. They're not going to let him do it. Yeah. But the <laughs> fact that he actually became the president, it's like, man, my under- it really propelled my idea about what I could do in my life to a whole nother level. Mm. I now felt like, not that nobody was kind of keeping me from doing stuff, but I feel like, you know what, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Yeah. You know? it, it just kind of like, really expanded what I felt like I put myself on the line to do instead of being in a situation to where like, well, you know, it's like Cedric Entertainment always tells his joke about when he go to a concert, the black folks and white couples decided to do it. The white couple like, I hope nobody's sitting in my seat. Black people were like, I wish somebody would be sitting in my seat. We we always looking, I wish somebody would. And we we live in this constant state of feeling like we got to prove and be, you know, prove ourselves, you know? Yeah. I have been in this industry for a long time too. I have sat at tables where I'm the only black person. And I, I don't necessarily didn't like that because then they make it feel like I have to be the representative to every black person. So whatever I do is representative, but I'm unique to me, you know? Yeah. My experiences are only unique to me. And so what I might do, I give you an example. I went to a predominantly white grammar school mm-hmm. for a, lot of, a large period of time. 
And so I remember one day me and my brother were walking to the record store. This is back when they had record stores. Yeah. And so uh, my cousin, he was much older than us. He's like, hey, what y'all get from the record store? We had got a 45. And he said, we got jump. He said, by Rich Flagler. said, no, by Van Halen. So he just kind of looked at us like, what? You know, <laughs> you know, and so my understanding of my life, that's where my understanding comes from, you know? Yeah. Although I knew what Jump by Aretha Franklin, but that's not what we bought. Because that was the first 45 we brought. The first record mm. we brought was Jump by Van Halen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's quite different. Like, in, I guess it just, I guess it, it doesn't go with sort of like the normal sort of stereotype of what someone of our skin should look like or should do. Um, like, I even, like, for me, like, I honestly love listening to Frank Sinatra, but it's somebody who you wouldn't expect to listen to Frank Sinatra. Um, but I think it's really important that you kind of, that like, you just be authentic to yourself and that you know what you, who you are and what you want. Um, and also something I wanted to touch on when you were talking about Obama um, is that even though obviously he's not, he's not our president here in the UK, like I remember on the night he got elected, on the night like they were counting all the ballots and everything else like that, we stayed up to watch him be like either to be inaugurated or not. And obviously, thankfully he was, but it still felt like such a monumental moment for like, I think for everywhere, for like black people everywhere. Cause we're like, damn, a black person's in, in, is in the white house. One of the most powerful countries in the world. And it's kind of like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't describe it. I can't imagine what it was like for people actually in the U S but even for black people here, we're like, man, that's crazy. Yeah, it was. We were walking around with that on our on our chip on our shoulders for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, we all you just walked different. The pride that we had uh, of him being a black a president that was a lot of pride. Mm. You know, having a black family living in there. His wife from the South Side of Chicago. Yeah, the, the mother in law. They were quintessential black people. There was no question about maybe they was this and that. They were black people. And mm -hmm. so that was very, because the idea, <laughs> I swear, if you had told me a couple years ago, I would have said, no, that's not even possible. <laughs> that was really possible. And we are, it actually happened and happened two times. Yeah. I mean, really, I, the first time, okay, y'all made it. I'll ask it too much for two times, but the second time, oh my goodness, that was just like, the odds, it's just, it just surreal. And yeah. honestly, if he could have won the third time, he probably would have won the third time. Probably could have, probably could have gone away. I mean, then you wouldn't have had Trump, so it would, at least it would have been a much rather Obama for a third time. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, I think, I think the importance of sorts of like, being able to see someone that looks like you in a place of power or position, or even just doing things which you thought you never could, like it can't be understated how that like shifts your mindset. It's kind of like, if he can do it, then I can do it, surely. Yes, yeah, that, that is always anything. And, and we, by humans, we look by example, we see what other people do, and we look as encouragement to either do it, do something better, or have a roadmap to the possibility that we can do it. You only can achieve something that you can dream it. If you can't dream it, you can't achieve it. If mm -hmm. that's not in your understanding, if you haven't read, talked to somebody, whatever, there's no way, if, if, if you've never made a cake before, you've only seen maybe pictures, when you eventually do make a cake, it's not gonna turn out the way you want it to, but if you talk to somebody and try a couple of times, then you're like, okay, I got this. So you need to be able to dream it and able to achieve it. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think people need to be able to give themselves the time and the space to be able to just dream it. And yeah, as you, I think as you said earlier, that finding a mentor is really important um, because at least then you've got someone direct to you that can be like, I've done it. This is how I did it. And it's easier. And I, I, you know what? It is probably much easier for our young, for the younger generation to kind of do those things because there's so much more. Like you've got Google. I could search anything up on my phone or like, you can record, like, I guess as a filmmaker now, people can go and buy a camera and record and do things quite easily and editing software is cheap now. So it's like, there's a lot more, there's a lot more access. It's a lot easier, I'd say, to maybe do some other things than maybe it wasn't. You know what? what I think about that when you say it is that 
a lot of times what keep filmmakers from doing stuff, and I had this problem as a young filmmaker, is that you feel like you need all these things to, to, to make it work. You, I need these things. I need Let me tell you something. This phone right here, you could do a movie on this phone, literally. Yeah. Literally could do a movie on the phone. So it's really, it's really on your ability to, uh, to make things happen. There's really not a lot of excuses. There's so many platforms that you can put stuff on, you know, there's so many places to make create opportunities. You have to be in a situation to where you have the will to say, this is what I'm going to do. And mentors are not always to other filmmakers or anything. Mentors can be somebody in your family who just encourages you. you know, mm. My father, my mother and father, very big encouragements to me, uh, even though they don't know anything about film, but I'll <laughs> talk about certain things and then they'll, you know, give their insight to me. So that's, that's important to me. Yeah. Even my 14-year-old daughter, I come to her, she always give me the young people perspective. Like on TikTok, she's like, you're putting too much filters on <laughs> 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 you. You being like an old person, you know. So that inspiration can come from a variety of different places. And so we just have to seek out, seek it out within our own circle of people. Yeah. And I think as well, like being receptive enough to like when they tell you something to actually listen. Cause even like I know there's times that my mom, my mom and my dad would be telling me something and I know they're right, but I, there's sometimes it's just a pride of like, I don't want you to be right. Please stop being right because uh, to stop, I, I, I want to, and I, I want to stay in my ignorance or my pride of that I'm right and you're, you're telling me it's not. But, but you know what, 10, 15 years from now, you were like, ah, oh, I should have listened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll save you so much heartache and waste of time. The one thing you cannot get back is time. You can always get more money, opportunity, but you can't get time back. Once you waste it, that is it. And so mm. you think about all the things that they told you younger because you couldn't hear it. Young people can't hear it because I'm guilty of it. I, I didn't <laughs> you think about all the time where you would be listening to what they said. So mm. that's something that we have to take, you listen. Now, some things, I'll be honest with you, just because they say it don't necessarily work for you. Yeah, true. <laughs> you have to be able to discern between constructive criticism or even some criticism that help you guide you to adjust what you're doing. They mm. might say, hey, you should make this blue and 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 you'd be like, okay, I want a green. Maybe like change it a little bit blue-green. You know, just to make an <laughs> assessment into what you're doing because they have a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end, yeah, as well. Um I think being able to take their advice on board and then kind of then at least you've listened and like you can then be like, all right, now I choose not to accept it because I don't think it goes with what this is. But at least you listened in the first place. You yeah, know? you got to be open, open. Yeah, positive. definitely. Um, and so um, what do you call it? Um, are there any um, sort of future projects? that um, you've got coming up that you're quite excited about and maybe want to talk about? Yeah, I got a, a couple of projects. Um, I have a feature that we're prepping for now called False Profits. False Profits is about, it's like a black Bernie Madoff. It's with a woman lead. Um, mm. She has a Ponzi scheme. Uh, her father owns a church. She has a Ponzi scheme where she's convincing people that if you want a home, I can help you give you a home. Which it's, it's all big up Ponzi scheme. Yeah, losing this money in the Ponzi scheme to fund her alternative lifestyle is her lesbian lover. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very intriguing. Her brothers and sisters who are in the church too, they uh, have a gospel group. So it's a lot of music. Yeah, of uh, 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 intriguing of her lying and things. So and it's, and on top of that, in the story, she's engaged to get married to somebody else. Oh damn. <laughs> so she's lead, she's leading a double life. Yes, she like is. triple life actually. Like yeah. being in church, running a Ponzi scheme, a lesbian, and she's about to get married. Wow, that's a lot of uh, balls to be juggling. <laughs> it's a lot of layers, and it is. So we we think that it's going to be really good. Um, uh, we hope to get started within the next month or so. We're still casting. So. <clears throat> I got some some big names attached, which I'm not going to say anything now, but I, I'm really hoping this to be a really, really good uh, yeah. project for us. Um, we have another show called The Show That Never Was. Uh, every year, uh, networks and distribution outlets, um, they produce lots of pilots for networks. For, for yeah. 
only 1% actually gets seen. So what we do, we go to those filmmakers who pilots never got seen and we have like a wraparound show, like a host, they talk, they introduce it, they show the whole pilot and they give a review. So uh, kind of give an opportunity to, to get that show out there, you know, to at least know if, it, if people thought it was going to be good or bad or say, hmm, hey, pick back up. That sounds really interesting, actually. Because, yeah, because I've, I've heard that there are a lot of pilots that never get picked up and sometimes they write, even write loads of few episodes and then in the hope that it will work, but it doesn't. But that'd be so cool to kind of see, like, maybe why they got rejected. And, like, it could, and maybe even, I don't know, hopefully maybe when people see it, they're like, actually, that actually is a really good idea, you know? Yeah, because a lot of times it's, it's one or two things. Either, either your idea is not good, <laughs> people have to accept that. Some things, <laughs> some things on paper doesn't translate very well to reality. Yeah. Or the right eyes just did not see it. The right people did not see it. They didn't see the vision of it. So hopefully with us, with the show, whatever way people think about it, every week is a new episode. Every week is a new show. Mm. We're going to shoot some new episodes. We shot some episodes already, but we're going to shoot some more at the end of September. And it should be out sometime like at the, uh, either December or at the beginning of the year. So mm. we're, we're looking forward to that. That's nice. That's cool. Um, so thank you uh, for coming on to the podcast. Um, I've really enjoyed everything that we've talked about. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to get some good value out of it. Um, but I just kind of also wanted to ask you one final question, uh, which I've kind of been out asking all of my guests. Um, say if there's a young black boy that's kind of like discovering their masculinity, um, what do you think something you know or something that this conversation can kind of help them um, with understanding themselves? So I would say, if I was a young black boy, let's think it back to myself, is in some aspects, you have to let stuff go. If you made mm. a mistake, it's okay. Keep moving forward. You have to let it go. You have to forgive yourself and just move forward. And a lot of times people make mistakes and they get kind of stuck in that and they don't, they can't really move because they, they, they don't know how to forgive themselves or don't understand the situation. It's okay to make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. It is okay. And the thing about it is, especially with creatives, and I, and I tell those creatives all the time, they've written something and then when they go to shoot it, don't work the way, when they get all upset, nobody knows but you and a writer. The audience is not going to say, why did they use that sink? Nobody knows. It's okay. <laughs> Move forward. But nobody knows that but me and a writer. Mm. So it's okay. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. Um, well, you, sir. I appreciate you having me on it. I really do. It's all right. I've enjoyed this conversation and I'm glad you were able to come on and chat with me. All right. Well, take care. Anything else, just give me a call. All right, bless. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Awesome, 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 awesome. That is the end of our conversation with John Wayne, which... I absolutely loved and I probably say I absolutely love all the conversations but that's because I generally do really enjoy a lot of the conversations I actually have um, some I enjoy more than others but that's just life in it um, but I really enjoy talking to John Wayne and being able to understand his experiences as a filmmaker and what being a filmmaker meant to him um, that was really cool um, and especially because I think as a kid I always wanted to be a director um, so being able to talk to a director is close enough. <laughs> but either way, um, it was really good um, and I enjoyed it. And being able to just talk about uh, how different perspectives, how you can have different perspectives um, from your own brother who you live in the same room as you or just even someone you think may view the world similar to you may not they may have a completely different version of what the world is and I think that's kind of interesting in terms of like how humans perceive the world and how they perceive their actions um, depending on their experiences of life you know but I think that's kind of also what makes it really interesting that we all have different experiences and similar experiences as well um, which we kind of touched on during the conversation um, when, what do you call it, John was saying that, you know, someone has usually gone through the thing that you're going through, so don't feel that you're so alone in it. 
Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, so yeah, um, thank you guys for listening to this episode. Uh, thank you for getting all the way here. Um, <laughs> um, I really hope you enjoyed the episode and I really hope it brought value to you. Um, if it did, share it with your friends, post it on your Instagram, tag me um, at Black and Raw. Um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a review because that's also how we grow too. And I really thank you guys uh, for coming and, and listening to the episode. So if you want to get in contact with me, it's speak at blackandraw.co.uk. That's my email. Um, if you're Instagram and Twitter, uh, at blackandraw.co.uk. That's the website. Ignore me. <laughs> at Black and Raw uh, for Instagram and Twitter and www.blackandroll.co.uk for the website. (laughs) All right, guys. Um, Thank you for tuning in and we'll talk soon.